This is the Bible in One Year Express, Day 34. Three types of victory in your life. Jose Enriquez was one of the 33 miners trapped 2,300 feet underground when a section of the San Jose copper mine in northern Chile collapsed. It was the 5th of August 2010. For 17 days, all rescue attempts failed. There was no sign of life in the copper mine. The trapped miners had enough food for three days and a little drinking water. They faced the prospect of an agonizing death through starvation. I interviewed Jose Enriquez and his wife Bianca at HCV. They told how they'd prayed to God for a miracle. He described the moment on the 22nd of August when a drill broke through into the tunnel where the men were trapped. They hammered the drill with iron rods. They sprayed paint on it. They sent up many messages on it. Only one stayed on the drill as it went back up to the surface. The message read, We're fine. The 33 in the shelter. In total, the men survived a record 69 days underground before they were brought to the surface. More than a billion people watched the rescue live on television. There were extraordinary scenes as everyone celebrated a wonderful victory. The life of faith is full of challenges, difficulties and trials, but there are also times of victory. In the passages for today, we see three different types of victory. From Psalm 18 He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Victory over your enemies. David faced many battles in life. He was surrounded by enemies. They were too strong for him. However, they are not too strong for God. God rescued him from those who were too strong for him and brought him into a spacious place. I stood there saved, surprised to be loved. If you're in a spacious place at the moment, remember to thank God for it. If not, cry out to God to rescue you. And, if any of your family or friends are struggling at the moment, pray that God will bring them too into a spacious place. Lord, thank you for the times when you brought me out into a spacious place. Today I pray for... New Testament from Matthew 22 Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Tell us then, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's? That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her?
Jesus replied, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Victory over your critics. Jesus' opponents interrogate him with three questions, a trap, a trick and a test. Each time he's victorious, gives an answer that not only amazes and astonishes, but also influences the whole of human history. What can we learn from Jesus' answers? First, don't divide your life into sacred and secular. The Pharisees planned to trap Jesus with his words. They said to Jesus, Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The taxes they referred to were extremely unpopular. If Jesus had said yes, he would have been discredited in the eyes of the people. Everyone would have hated him and seen him as a traitor wanting to help the Romans. If he said no, he'd have been guilty of sedition and been liable to arrest and execution. Jesus, in his unique wisdom, did not lay down rules and regulations, but expounded principles that are timeless. He gives an amazing answer. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Every follower of Jesus has a double citizenship. You have a responsibility to play your part as a good citizen involved in the structures of your society on earth. But you are also a citizen of heaven with a responsibility to God. In principle, the two, Caesar and God, need not be in conflict. You are called to be a good citizen of both. Get involved in the life of your society. Don't withdraw from it. It's not that God is in charge of the sacred area of your life and the government is in charge of the secular area of your life. Rather, your whole life is under God's authority. Part of your commitment to God is to honour and obey the demands that the government legitimately makes on you. In the same way that a Kohen would have borne Caesar's image, you bear God's image. God wants you to give him the whole of your life. Second, know that there is life after death. Next, the Sadducees come along with a trick question about a woman with seven husbands. Because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, they designed a complicated trick question to show how absurd it was. Jesus replies, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Jesus uses the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which are the only ones the Sadducees trusted, to show that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He does this by quoting God's words to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3 verse 6. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Although Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had been dead for hundreds of years, God did not say, I was their God, but I am their God. 
they are still alive. Jesus is showing that this life is not all there is. Furthermore, there will be a continuity between this life and the life to come. There is a physical resurrection, yet there is discontinuity too, for we will be like the angels in heaven. Above all, the scriptures show that there will be a resurrection. And if God is all-powerful, why shouldn't there be? Third, prioritize love for God and others. Then the Pharisees come up with a test question to which Jesus gives a brilliant answer, which goes to the heart of the whole of the Old Testament. Love God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence and love people. Love others as well as you love yourself. Everything else is a detailed working out of these two commands. Having silenced his critics, Jesus then asks them a question about his identity. He shows from the scriptures that the Christ is not just David's son, he's David's Lord. He demonstrates that the Messiah is far more than simply a great human king. This not only challenges their assumptions about the Messiah, it is also a veiled indication to them of Jesus' identity. This is a moment of victory for Jesus. That stumped them, literalists that they were, unwilling to risk losing face again. In one of these public verbal exchanges, they quit asking questions for good. Father, please give me wisdom, like Jesus, to avoid the traps, to deal with the trick questions, and to answer the testing ones. Old Testament from Job 30-32 to I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. If I have walked with falsehood, or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales, and he will know that I am blameless. If I have denied the desires of the poor, or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared them as a father would, and from my birth I guided the widow, If I have put my trust in gold, or said to pure gold, You are my security. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands had gained. If I have regarded the sun in its radiance, or the moon moving in splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed, and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then these would also be sins to be judged. For I would have been unfaithful to God on high. If I have rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by invoking a curse against their life. If those of my household have never said, Who has not been filled with Job's meat? But no stranger had to spend the night in the street, for my door was always open to the traveller. If I have concealed my sin as people do by hiding my guilt in my heart, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defence. Let the Almighty answer me. Third, victory over your temptations. The book of Job demonstrates once and for all that sin and suffering are not necessarily directly connected to an individual's sin or lack of sin. The whole point of the book of Job is that although Job is not perfect, It is not Job's sin that caused his suffering. 
Job was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Job knew that in spite of the accusations of his friends, he had a totally clear conscience. It's as if he'd been put on trial, facing his accuser in the dock with an indictment against him. In today's passage, he gives his defence. Job's life was an example, an inspiration and a challenge. This is a wonderful picture of holy and righteous living. Keep yourself pure. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. He was not enticed in his heart into adultery. He realized that adultery is a fire that burns the house down. Avoid materialism. He did not put his trust in riches in spite of the great wealth he had. He did not put his hope in pure gold by saying, You're my security. Again, his heart had not been secretly enticed. Love your enemy. He'd resisted the temptation to hate his enemies. He didn't gloat when his enemies were in trouble, which is such a powerful temptation. There's a great temptation to speak words of anger, but Job did not allow his mouth to sin by invoking a curse against his enemies. Be generous. It's not just in his personal life that he avoided sin. He was fair to his employees. He did not deny the desires of the poor. His door was always open to the traveller. Lord, help me to live with a clear conscience, to keep myself pure and to put my trust in you alone. Thank you that through the cross of Jesus, you make forgiveness for my past failures possible. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, I can be victorious over temptation. Pepper adds, I'm very impressed with Job's confidence that the Lord will find him blameless. As it says in Job 31 verse 6, he gives a very long list of the way he has lived his life, including that of not keeping his bread to himself. I didn't feel at all generous a few years ago when I returned home to find that Nicky had given away all the chocolate brownies I'd made for a special occasion to a group of visitors. I still have a long way to go.